1 Corinthians 3. I'm also going to stick my neck out and say, I know that this is Australia, and Australia is not on the whole really big into liturgy and all of that, but there's one little bit of liturgy that um, I rather like. So humor me. I'm a guest. And that is at the end of scripture reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will say, thanks be to God. Isn't that a great response? And, and if I don't say that, there are going to be half a dozen of you that mumble it. And everybody's embarrassed because they said it. And they're embarrassed um, because they feel that they, maybe they shouldn't have said it. And nobody knows what to do. Now you know what to do. Say it. And that's the way it'll be for the rest of the time that I'm with you. So here then, uh, Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. So, how do we decide what to do when the Bible is silent? Let us pray.
We take great comfort, Heavenly Father, from that word which tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we are to ask of you because you love to give it without upbraiding, without criticizing. So we do ask for it, not only tonight, but in the churches that are being planted, represented here, in the host churches, in decisions that are not spelled out specifically in Scripture, that we may nevertheless have the mind of Christ and act in conformity with what is revealed. Grant, Lord God, that we may be slow to speak, swift to hear, humble as we learn from one another, and eager to conform our lives to your most holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On some things, the Bible really is truly silent. For example, how to cut a dado joint in a nice piece of walnut. How to crochet. How to use a Garmin 1000 when flying a small aircraft. How to build a surfboard. Can't find a word about it anywhere. Not a word. But usually when we talk about domains that interest us where the Bible we say is silent, in fact, it's only relatively silent. It's relatively silent in one of three ways. Number one, the Bible speaks about something only once or twice, so we are uncertain what is meant or how to apply it exactly. Thus, there are some Christians who come to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul seems to want women to have something on their heads, and they say, this is the word of God. Women should have something on their heads when they worship. I look around tonight, and there are not many in compliance. And others say, well, yes, but it's only, it's only a, a cultural artifact. The, the, the point is not whether you've got something on your head or not. The point is, 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 is deeper than that. And then the reply comes back, well, yes. It's exactly the same thing with homosexuality. There's a cultural matter that's there, don't, don't you see? And in a different culture, it might work out a little differently. How do you sort that one out? Or, number two, the Bible says quite a lot on a subject, but historically, fine Christians have understood the passage in quite different ways. It's not as if the Bible is silent, absolutely. But for whatever reasons, we have not come to a common mind, even amongst Christians who have an equally devout reverence for Holy Scripture. I suspect that there are both Baptists and Pado-Baptists here tonight. And some of you are really quite informed about this debate. Some of you have studied scripture on the matter for quite some time, and you can't agree. It's not as if scripture doesn't say anything. It's, it's we, the readers of scripture, have understood scripture so differently. So that in our own experience, scripture is not speaking with a clear voice. We may say that it's our fault, but nevertheless, the result is still the same. If you don't like that one, how about church government? Believers' church traditions... Congregational government, Presbyterian government, Episcopal government? How about divorce and remarriage? It's not as if the Bible doesn't say anything about it. 
But historically, Christians have sometimes differed amongst themselves as to what Scripture actually does teach. Number three, another way the Bible may say, may be relatively silent. The Bible may say nothing directly about a subject, but it does lay down some important principles that bear on the subject. For for example, there's not a word anywhere about multi-site ministry and using videos. Not a word. And yet, there are some things the Bible does say that we have to take into account. What is the nature of the church and fellowship? What about our mission commitments to evangelize? Is this going to reach more people? Supposing those two principles seem to conflict, what do we do with them? What's the place of parachurch ministry? The Apostle Paul never speaks of Sunday schools. Never mentions Moore College. Not once. (laughs) Let alone Campus Crusade or AFES or you name it. Military chaplaincies, digital church. So how are we to think our way through these matters? In no particular order of importance, here are some suggested principles, an apostolic number of them. That's 12, in case you didn't know. Now, um, some of these I'll go through very quickly. I'll try to give you an example or two. Three or four of them we'll spend a little more time on, and we'll have lots of time at the end for questions. This is not an exhaustive treatment, nor a completely satisfying one. It's not much more than priming the pump so that we are forced to think through uh, these matters. Number one, discern what is theologically attached to relatively obscure passages. Discern what is theologically attached to relatively obscure passages. I've heard people say, for example, the word of God says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Some of you people live in cultures where you think J.B. Phillips' paraphrase will get you by. Give a hearty handshake all around. You're unbiblical. And if you think it's all right to give a hearty handshake all around and that that's an adequate response to this injunction from God himself, then surely you can be a little more flexible on other issues about, for example, whether women may teach men in a local church. But one of the criteria that we need to bear in mind is this. We need to see in every passage what is theologically attached to the injunction. What is theologically attached to the topic that is only brought up once. In this case, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's only mentioned once. It's very easy to teach that in France. It's very easy to teach that in the Arab world. Believe me, you're not going to have a ghost of a chance of getting it across in China. But the question is this, is there a kind of theology of kissing? (laughs) Believe it or not, I'm not trying to titillate. I just want to know, is there a theology of kissing? Or is the kissing merely a way in that culture for expressing hearty acceptance, warm welcome, care for one another, love one another? What is theologically attached to that passage? And the same thing, I would argue, with respect to women and hats. 
That is to say, there is only one passage that actually mentions that subject in the Pauline writings, just one. The question is, is there a theology of hats? There is certainly a theology of head with respect to another head, of one party with respect to another party, which is symbolically represented in this wearing of hats or not wearing of hats, but is there attached to hats themselves a certain kind of theology? Now, that may not answer all questions, but it's at least an important question that has to be asked in these debates. Number two, nothing exempts you from the obligation to engage in careful exegesis and wide reading. So, you're wrestling through with questions of church government. You're wrestling through with questions of divorce and remarriage. You're wrestling through questions of eschatology. You're wrestling through with questions of um, authoritarianism versus uh, almost a democratic congregationalism. What's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is study scripture for yourself. It's, it sounds so obvious, but it is not always done. What happens instead is we start reading the debates. We, we, we start reading uh, our preferred authors, or we, we start getting on the blog sites and do some Google searches. But the first thing you must do, if you're serious about forming your opinions by the word of God, is study the word of God. Do your exegesis. You're a pastor. Study the Bible. And within that framework, you may come to a convincing line, or if not, you will at least find out where the real cores of the debate lie, what the differences of opinion consist in. Number three, the pragmatics of ministry require you to make some decisions. Now, I teach at a seminary called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Let me compare Trinity briefly with, with Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas. Westminster Theological Seminary is a Presbyterian Reformed school. So it teaches a Presbyterian form of government and paedo-baptism, that form of paedo-baptism well represented in high Presbyterianism. Dallas, by contrast, is historically a dispensational school, though very often on the ground it follows what is often called today a progressive dispensationalism, but it allows both Baptist views and paedo-Baptist views. On the other hand, its eschatology is quite fixed. At Westminster, most of them over there are all millennialists. There are no dispensationalists at Westminster. None. There are a couple of historic pre-mills, but they're slightly weird dudes. And then... At Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I teach, we have some Baptists and some Paedo-Baptists. We have lots of Reformed theologians, a couple of dispensationalists, several historic pre-mills, quite a lot of historic pre-mills, the weird ones, and, 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 and a lot of five-point Calvinists. We're all at Trinity, and we all claim inerrancy. Now, what happens to the students in these three schools? Well, if you graduate from Westminster, the chances are overwhelming. You'll come out with Presbyterian theology and praxis, overwhelming. And you will have been exposed to some Baptist arguments and some dispensational arguments, but always taught by somebody who doesn't hold them. 
which means that the way they've been presented to you is inevitably, no matter how fair-minded the professor is, inevitably there's a bit of a slant. So it takes a Baptist student at Westminster a certain amount of courage and determination to graduate still a Baptist. And then you go to Dallas. Well, at Dallas, they graduate Baptist, they graduate Pado-Baptist, but they graduate pre-mills. And a lot of them are pre-mill dispensationalists. There, it takes quite a lot of schmals to graduate and an, an all-millennialist. Yeah, it does. Then you come to Trinity. Ah, free from the law, happy condition. <laughs> the problem, of course, is that our students face another danger, a danger that many of them don't even recognize at first. They're in danger of saying, well, Professor A doesn't agree with Professor B, so who am I to decide? So therefore, they don't decide. And they come out with the lowest common denominator theology. Now, if our students come out strongly formed in one tradition or another, they will be ahead of the other guys because they really will have heard the best arguments from another perspective. That's Trinity's strength. Trinity's weakness is that you can, if you're not careful, come out with the lowest common denominator theology. So on issue after issue, you can get graduates coming out who can tell you all about the debates about everything, but who haven't made up their own minds. The trouble is, when they graduate, eventually they're going to have to get into a church. And churches will have made up their minds. And they don't like too many pastors who, in fact, haven't made up theirs. So Presbyterian churches are not real keen on taking on their staffs lovely evangelicals who say, I don't know yet. I'm still making up my mind. In other words, the pragmatics of ministry really demand that you've come down somewhere or other. And ideally, you want to come down in an informed way, in a defensible way, in an intelligent way. And, and within that framework, you may then very carefully say that there are different items in the denominal, dom, denominational statement to which you adhere that you hold with different degrees of tenacity. So when I moved from Canada to teach near Chicago at Trinity, it had one or two statements of faith in it where I could sign on with a clear conscience. But I said to the powers that be when I first went there in 1978, about the deity of Christ, I'm prepared to uh, die for that one. And about, um, about the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm prepared to die for that one. And about substitutionary atonement, I'm prepared to die for that one. About historic premillennialism, eh, I think it's on balance of probabilities. I can sign on to it. And the dean at the time said, so long as on balance of probabilities you don't take the opposing view, that's okay. We all recognize that in any statement of faith, we will hold on to different sectors of the statement of faith with different degrees of tenacity. That's all right. What we can't tolerate is somebody who, on balance, takes an opposing view. So what I'm really saying, especially to younger men who are still sorting these things out in their minds, don't think that endless open-endedness marks necessarily a great open spirit. It may simply mark indecision. And sooner or later, it will trip you up in the ministry. Sooner or later, in a local church, you've got to follow this structure or that structure. And it, it may be that you'll only come down to balance of probabilities about what you think scripture teaches, but you must come down somewhere. 
That's my third. Number four. Most decisions in these disputed areas have both good and bad defenses. And they need to be discerned. Now, most of you folks know that by ordination, I'm a Baptist. Let me tell you, there are some horrid defenses of baptism by immersion. Horrid, horrid. All kinds of Baptists say, for example, that first you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and then when you're ready to accept him as Lord, then you get baptized because then you're serious. I can't find any sanction for that anywhere in Scripture. It's an abomination. It doesn't understand the gospel. There are all kinds of Baptists who offer defenses of baptism along other lines that in my view, are equally repugnant and without any justification. But I've heard some pretty ridiculous defenses of pedo-baptism, too. In other words, you want to be very careful when you do defend one side or another on a disputed matter that you offer up the best defense you can possibly marshal with the best knowledge of Scripture and how it's been understood and thought through in times past. Just because you come out on a certain side of a disputed matter doesn't mean all those who come out on the same side are your friends. In fact, I'm so ashamed of so many Baptist positions on baptism, it's almost enough to make me a pedo baptist <laughs> But mercifully, there are some Reformed Baptists around who seem to get things right, in my view, um, which I hold with a certain minor degree of tenacity. And, and in that connection, then, part of discernment on these disputed matters is recognizing that there are good and bad defenses of almost any position. Number five, most such decisions have entailments down the road. It's rare that you make decisions about church government or parish church or egalitarianism, complementarianism, or many, many other issues without there being entailments down the road. So part of thinking things through is learning to project into the future if you possibly can. If you're young, one of the ways of doing that is talking with senior saints who've been around for a few decades. Now, there are entailments of this one that I'll come to in a moment to unpack it a little bit more. Number six, here I'll spend a little more time. Most decisions about church structures are grounded, in part, on reading a variety of biblical texts a certain way. And it is the part of humility to recognize that there are other ways, and your arguments are rarely beyond dispute. Let me repeat that. Most decisions about church structures are grounded in part on reading biblical texts a certain way, getting the balance of things lined up a certain way. And it is the part of humility to recognize that there are other ways and your arguments are rarely beyond dispute. For example, I know one well-known preacher. Many of you would recognize his name if I mentioned it, but I refrain, who loathes with a passion anything that falls under the label of congregational government. No justification for it in Holy Scripture, he says. 
It's an abomination. It's part of the independence of the age instead of submitting to what Scripture says. Scripture says, obey those who have the rule over you, Hebrews 13, quote, unquote. And those who have the rule over you in that context are not government officials in the context. They're clearly church leaders. That's what it says. Obey those who have the rule over you. The Bible says it. I believe it. Go and obey it and stop, argue, stop arguing. But others will say, yeah, the Bible does say that. Yeah, it does. In fact, there are quite a lot of texts that insist that the church is to submit to the judgment of the elders on all kinds of matters. On the other hand, Matthew 18, in certain matters, says, tell it to the church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, when there is someone to be excommunicated from the church, it's an action that is taken by the whole church. Now, I know how those passages are explained away by one side or the other, but nevertheless, there is an emphasis on church wholeness, church discipline, not merely elder discipline. So those, therefore, who listen to both sets of texts say there is some kind of tension here in Scripture. It's not quite like IBM, where all the authority comes down from on high, nor is it exactly like Athenian democracy, where every male in the city has exactly the same vote and clout. It's not a representative form of democracy. It's direct democracy. It's neither one nor the other. In the New Testament, there's a certain kind of tension between the authority of the church and the authority of, of elders, pastors, overseers in the church because either side can go bad. So the church in Corinth, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, that church is told again and again by the Apostle Paul to get rid of the leaders in their church whom Paul dismisses as false apostles, masquerading as apostles of light. In fact, he says in chapter 13, this is the third time I've written to you, third time I've come to you, and when I come this next time, um, I, I've got to warn you, if you haven't got rid of them, I'll get rid of them. So in other words, the church has responsibility on occasion for getting rid, rid of false teachers, just as there are lots of teachers in the New Testament church that are responsible for teaching things and gently correcting in righteousness and ultimately, if necessary, disciplining those who are disruptive and teaching false doctrine in the church. There's a tension there. Either side can go bad. And some of the disputes about how things will be done amongst us then turn in part on where we see the biggest danger is in our context. Or they turn in part on where we lay the maximum emphasis when there's a tension in the text. Or they turn in part even on our own personalities. And what that means then is that it becomes the part of humility to recognize that where there are such tensions and balancing acts in scriptural texts regarding structure and the like, it's the part of humility to recognize that how we have aligned these texts depends on a number of judgments that may not be infallible. We need to walk with a certain kind of humility, learn from one another, and be careful especially not to consign opponents to the bottom level of Dante's Inferno. So, likewise, other ways in which we may read differently some of the evidence of Scripture. In the New Testament, the word church, in the singular, with only one exception from Acts on, the word church in the singular refers to the church of a city. So the church in Ephesus. 
the church in Jerusalem, the church in Laodicea, the church in Hierapolis. The trouble is some of those churches we know well had thousands and thousands of people. So the church in Jerusalem, for example, saw 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost. Not too long later, there were 5,000. There were 5,000 men plus the women and children, which meant you've got 20,000 people. For a while, they could meet not only from home to home, where they studied the apostles' doctrine and broke bread together and so forth, but they could also meet in Solomon's colonnade, part of the whole temple complex. But once there was enough antipathy between unconverted Jews and the Christians who were all converted Jews, then they were doubtless banned from Solomon's colonnade. Therefore, they only met at that point in house churches. But that doesn't mean that the text immediately started talking about the churches in Jerusalem. They still spoke of the church in Jerusalem. The only time you find the plural word churches for certain empirical churches is at the provincial level. So it's the church in Jerusalem, the churches in Judea, the church in Ephesus, the churches in Asia, the church in Rome, the churches in Italy. Now, that's very interesting. If you come to a small place like Hierapolis and there's only one church at the beginning, well, that's, that's fine, no difficulty. But supposing you have a place like Ephesus where the church grew very rapidly, but there was enough opposition that the only place they could have met that was big enough was, in fact, in the arena. You can still go and see it today. It's, it's, it's wide open. I've taken pictures of it. You can see the But that's the place where eventually they threw Christians to be eaten by lions. It wasn't the places where they could have evangelistic rallies. So the church in Ephesus, therefore, was meeting in homes. Still one church. So what do we talk about today? The church in Sydney? Never, never. It's the churches in Sydney. And by church in Sydney, we may mean our denomination, the Anglican church. Or if we're slightly misinformed, we might speak of the Baptist church, although informed Baptists never speak of the Baptist church because Baptists strictly do not belong to a denomination. They belong to an association because they believe in the independence of the local church. So Baptist churches, Anglican church. But that means we're using church in a denominational sense, which never crops up in the New Testament either. And so suddenly we begin to realize that our use of words is different from New Testament use of words. And the question is, how do we make the transfers? Well, if you're a high Presbyterian, one of the reasons why you justify Presbyterian government, the government of presbyters, of elders, over more than one local church is because of this nomenclature usage that I've just described. So there is the church in Jerusalem, and undoubtedly at some point they're meeting separately in different homes they're, they're almost like small churches that we think of today. The 30 here, 70 there, 60 there, 100 there. And maybe each one had an elder or two. But all the elders together of Jerusalem meet together in some sense. That's why, for example, when Paul is coming back from his second missionary journey, um, uh, he, he, he stops in Miletus to meet with the elders of the church in Ephesus. It's not just the elders of the church on Front Street. It's the elders of the church in Ephesus. Do you see? And so you've got elders extending beyond the local assembly who are nevertheless collectively ruling all of these assemblies in Ephesus. So the Presbyterians say that justifies our form of government. 
And then the Baptists come along. And they say, yes, we acknowledge the terminology is a wee bit different. And there is a place, surely, for house groups, small groups, family groups, home groups. What do you call them in your church? I don't really care what you call them. There's a place for that. Within the larger congregation, there's a place for small groups. But if you have a big enough small group, it really has become de facto a small church. And at that point, you will have leaders in it who are functioning as elders. Do you, do you see? Now, that's still different from the usage of the term church in the New Testament, but it, it, it doubtless shows that you could have separate churches with elders leading individual units that, that really have become de facto independent churches. And if the assembly is big enough, then they might have two elders, three elders. There's nothing in the Bible that prescribes how many elders you must have in a local church. Nothing. And then along come the Anglicans. Whoa. I think, in fact, even most evangelical Anglicans think that in the New Testament, there are really only two offices. Elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. That's one office. Three different names for one office. And deacon. Now, I would be prepared to justify that at great length. So the question is, how do you get three offices so that bishops and archbishops and primates and things like that are at a separate tier to the leaders of local churches and to deacons. How, how, do, how do you justify that? Well, not too long ago, I went for a long walk with the Archbishop of Sydney. Not the present one, so that you cannot connect this story to Peter Jensen. It was one of the preceding four, and I won't tell you which one. But I've known these men, and they're interesting and good men. On this particular occasion, we were going for a long walk in the Blue Mountains. And we came back to the car, sweaty and hot. And um, we had taught theology and shop all the way. It's, it's, it's what people like us do. <laughs> and, and, and somewhere along the line, I had I'd got to know this man well enough over enough years that I, I said to him, my dear brother, I don't mean to be rude, but I'd really love to know how you justify your job. <laughs> you know, where, where do you find archbishops in the New Testament? I, I, I know you believe the Bible, you know, you teach the Bible. You're how, how do you justify archbishops in the New Testament? And he said to me, well, if you get over the difference in name, that, the name archbishop isn't there, nevertheless... There is an apostle like Paul, and there are churches out there. And between the apostle like Paul and the churches out there, there is someone like Timothy or Titus, who's commissioned to be Paul's representative to teach these churches and appoint elders in various places and do various things. I'm sort of like a Titus or Timothy in the structure of things. That's what I am. Well, I could think of alternative explanations for Titus and Timothy, but I wasn't trying to have an argument. Uh, so I said, well, that's, that's very interesting. And he said, you know, Don, he said, I think you'd make a good bishop. <laughs> I think the blighter was trying to recruit me. <laughs> I said, almost thou persuadest me to be an Anglican. And he said, but such will have trouble in the flesh, and I would spare thee. And thus we continued quoting King James Version back and forth at each other. And then we went our separate ways. Now, my, my only point in telling you this story is, is to show that there are 
good men with deeply reverent approaches to scripture who may use the same exegetical phenomena to configure things just a bit differently. Now, I could tell you in every one of those cases how I would respond. But on the other hand, if they were here talking with me, they could tell you how they would respond to me, and then I would tell you how I would respond to them, and you'd have a real ding-dong up here. But, but at, at the same time, um, it might be that quite a lot of us would go to our places feeling justified by our own traditions after all, and we might not have proceeded very far in the discussion. It takes a long time to have the kind of discussion that penetrates through that superficial level of defenses. So my general point is very simple. Most decisions about structures of church government and the like are grounded in part on reading the Bible's text a certain way. And it is the part of humility to recognize that there are other ways and, and your arguments are rarely beyond dispute. Number seven. Some decisions turn on competing values. And that means being forced to hierarchize those values. Let me repeat that and then explain it. Some decisions turn on competing values, and that means being forced to hierarchize those values. For example, I think I can mention his name. It won't. It won't. I'll mention two names in this case. You probably, many of you, have heard of both of them. Some, both of men have been here in Australia, but I'll take it off your patch by talking about people elsewhere. If, if you consider the ministry of Mark Dever, Mark Dever has considered church matters close and central. He runs a, what he calls a six-month ecclesiological boot camp for young pastors to, to teach them how churches ought to operate and what things are non-negotiable in Scripture, principles of church discipline and, and the like. So within that framework, because he's thought so much about what a local church should be like, he's come out pretty strongly against multi-site ministries. Far better to plant more churches. Multi-site ministries, he thinks, are breaking down how a church ought to operate. With fellowship, people knowing one another, and all the kinds of things you can do to compensate, he says, like small groups and the like, don't really address the central problem, what is the nature of the church? That's Mark Dever, whether you follow him or not. On the other hand, someone like John Piper, who has also been out here, um, Bethlehem Baptist Church has three sites, or four, I can't remember which, three or four, and um, he manages to preach one or two of them on a Sunday, and then a video recording gets preached in one. There might be a, an associate pastor that preaches in another. Some of these videos are simultaneous. They're just streamed through. And sometimes they're an hour or two later in various multi-site ministries. And... And from his point of view, um, although on paper he agrees with the ecclesiology of Mark Dever to a pretty large extent, he nevertheless says that the mandate of evangelism, of reaching out to people under ministry that really does seem to be anointed, is so great that, that you, you become a little more flexible in, in, in how you organize things. And, and then you can see how the argument goes. If you were in the days of Whitfield... You could only preach to a certain number of people at once because there was no audio magnification. If I want to preach to a bigger crowd, all I have to do is get a little closer to the microphone or somebody cranks it up somewhere and I could preach to 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 without raising my voice. 
So suddenly you have Spurgeon preaching regularly to 5,000 on some weekends, 25,000. That's not exactly an intimate little church. Shall we forbid him to do that? Okay, supposing then it's two services in a 5,000-seat congregation. Or break it down to smaller units. You have a 500-seat congregation. Now I have two services of 500 each. Or supposing you have a 250-seat congregation. Is there something wicked about having two services and still calling it one church? All right, supposing you have three services. How about four? Supposing you have two in this site and one in another site that is live streamed. Now, it's still the same amplification system. You're still using microphones and you're still using speakers and big screens. Is that going beyond something that is forbidden in Scripture? Well, then supposing you delay it an hour, does that make it less holy because it's been delayed an hour? Did you see? On the other hand, you can keep whittling away and whittling away until you suddenly start scratching your head and saying, at what point does this become sort of mass-produced entertainment? These things become really difficult. And they all stem from two very simple principles. Number one, what is the church and how does it function as a body, holding together cohesively, each part doing its work? And on the other, how can we maximize evangelistic outreach? Both are biblically rooted principles, deeply biblically rooted principles. And at the end of the day, when you have a division of opinion between two good men on that matter, in fact, one is hierarchicalized one above the other, and the other is hierarchicalized the other one. They're saying, in effect, it's more important. And so some of our disputes in such matters turn on how there are different principles in Scripture that have to be seen as offering competing, complementary values, and hierarchicalization is simply an inevitability. Number eight, be very, very suspicious of guru solutions. That's why I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. In chapter 1, I am of Peter. And the sanctum, most sanctimonious of the lot. <laughs> Not me, I'm just a Christian. I'm of Christ. I'm of Driscoll. I'm of Jensen. Be very suspicious of guru solutions. Nobody has all the truth in such pragmatic matters. And in this case, very frequently, what happens when you latch on to one guru in a kind of exclusive way is you rob the church you are serving of other complementary insight. Did you see after Paul warns in the first part of the chapter here how you really must not say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Driscoll, or whatever. He comes to the end and he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. He says, don't, don't deceive yourselves. If you think that you're wise because you're following one particular guru, in the context, that's what it means. If you think you're wise by the standards of this age because you're following a particular guru, you should become fools. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. God catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. Deal with principle. Deal 
with text. Deal with theological reflection. And they may be exemplified in leaders who articulate them in certain ways. We need to learn from one another, but be careful of gurus. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. And see how it ends up? All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. In other words, if you're reformed, there are some things to learn from Wesley. And likewise, in the domain of church government and elsewhere, it really is very important to recognize that there is a heritage of godliness and insight and so on. If people don't always agree, then you have to bring things back to the test of Scripture. That's using your head, learning to be discerning, and so on, so on, so on. But be careful of simple guru solutions. They are almost always dangerous. Number nine. Try to think strategically, including thinking through potential unforeseen consequences. Now, that's asking for a contradiction in terms. I know that. How can you think through unforeseen consequences? If they're unforeseen, how can you think them through? If you're thinking them through, they're not unforeseen. I, I know that. But I'll leave it the way it is, just the same. Try to think strategically, and that includes casting up in your mind what is likely to be the result of this decision or another decision? The danger of unforeseen consequences is simply huge. You're never just building for today. The blessings and discipline, the encouragement, the structures, the accountability, the way you train leaders will get magnified when those people then train other people. Now, there are lots and lots and lots of historical examples of this. For example, there have been many Mennonites in the past who interpreted the gospel a certain, in a certain pacifist tradition with certain social structures. The next generation then assumes the gospel and magnifies the social structures. The generation after that largely ignores the gospel and maintains and identifies with the social structures. And the generation after that denies the gospel and still maintains the social structures. So somewhere along the line, part of our job, if we're thinking strategically, is how you make the main thing the main thing. How that gets passed on in individuals, in leaders, in structures, so far as it's possible. Oh, I know that the wheel can come off in any case unless God blesses us with renewal. And you're never two or three, more than two or three generations away from extinction anyway. That's why there must always be renewed evangelism and outreach and, 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 and people who are genuinely converted. That, 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 that's the way it is. That's the way God has ordained it to be. But nevertheless, it still means that we who are in positions of leadership must be trying to think through the entailments of our decisions. Now, there are lots of questions that could be raised about that one, but I'm going to press on. Number 10. Many questions about levels of fellowship with other groups, whether we should work with this group or that group, would be greatly helped by clear thinking about two things. Number one, the next generation. Number two, center-bounded sets. Let me deal with the second one first. 
there are, at the risk of reductionism, two ways of organizing something, whether a church or a parachurch organization or whatever. You can define it as a, as a boundary-bounded set. When you have a boundary-bounded set, then everybody within the boundary is in the set. Everybody outside the boundary is outside the set. So let's take the boundary of evangelicalism. Everybody who is an evangelical then is to be called evangelical and belongs to the world of evangelicalism. And everybody who is outside the world of evangelicalism is not an evangelical. But that sort of way of defining things means that there is a lot of pressure to keep pushing the boundary farther out. You don't exclude somebody who really does trust Christ, even if they have some screwball ideas about what Scripture is. And you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to eliminate somebody just because uh, they come from a different religious tradition, even though they're not really all that keen on substitutionary atonement. They, they might acknowledge that it's possibly there in the New Testament, but it's not that big a deal. And, and, and so you, you push it out a little farther and a little farther and a little farther, and everybody inside is this, is this evangelical. And the pressure is constantly pushed out, pushed out, pushed out, pushed out to include as many people in this rubric evangelical. Now, I've used evangelicalism, but I could have said church planting organization or reformed Baptist pastors fellowship. I mean, it can be all kinds of things. Do you, do you see? But it's a boundary bounded set and there are constantly pressures to push it out a little farther. Or in some separatist groups with a boundary bounded set, there are pressures instead to shrink it as much as possible. Everybody's off except me and thee and I have my doubts about thee. And then there are pressures to bring this thing in closer and closer and tighter and tighter. And everybody outside, you know, belongs in some lower range of Dante's Inferno again. But there is a completely different way of organizing an organization. And that is a center-bounded set. With a center-bounded set, you don't try to define who's in and out at the margins. You don't worry about that. You, you can't do it. Because it just gets too hazy out there in any case. Too many exceptions. What you do is you define the center tightly, richly, thickly. So what you do at the center is say, this is the evangel. This is the gospel. This is the biblical justification of it. This is what the word of God says. And you make sure that all your leaders in this center-bounded set are on board that's where your discipline is, at the center. And then if there are others who say they belong to you but don't sign on to everything, or there are others who sort of drift in and drift out, you don't worry about it. They're not at the center. They don't have the control. So at that point, it becomes possible for this center-bounded set and this center-bounded set to mesh in certain kinds of ways and overlap in shared responsibilities and shared vision without pretending that everybody in this set also belongs to that set and vice versa. Do, 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 do you see? So long as you have a very strong, well-defended, well-defined, center-bounded set. But if you don't have that, you drift toward the boundary-bounded set with all kinds of rules and legalism and, and, and a constant push for expansion or the like, which, in my experience, leads in due course to a certain kind of um, lowest common denominator theology that has not much power or life left to it. So, in North America, for example, there is an organization called the National Association of Evangelicals, and there is constant pressure in that organization to 
make sure the boundaries are low enough that every conceivable evangelical can get inside, including some who are not really so much evangelical as evangelies. You know? You know? Um, evangelical becomes so loosely defined that there are many evangelicals today whom no evangelical of 50 years ago would have recognized as such. And it becomes problematic because it's no longer defined at the center with confessionalism based on the word of God. The, the stomach of it has been ripped out. The, the, the heart of it, the, the mind in it, it's constantly playing games with the boundaries. And that means that eventually your whole set is defined by sociological categories rather than by the word of God. One of the ways you handle that is, even with a boundary-bounded set, you need to maintain the center. But there are some organizations that are best thought through by making them center-bounded set to begin with. And there, you don't look for lowest common denominator theology. You look for strength, for maturity, for thick theology, for fat theology, for theology that is enmeshed and tight and, and, and coherent and based on genuine exposition and, uh, of and submission to Holy Scripture. Now, I'm sure that can kick up some discussions too, but we'll give you the opportunity for that in a few moments. Number 11, learn to think theologically about cultural phenomena. Learn to think theologically about cultural phenomena. Now, there are a lot of examples in Scripture itself. Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, as far as we know, his first time there, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Here is Paul, having been brought up in Tarsus, probably the third most intellectual center in the Roman Empire. The first was Athens, the second was Alexandria, the third was Tarsus. That's where he was brought up. And for the first time, he's in Athens. Do you know? It's like, it's like people like you and me, Canadians and Australians and so on, for the first time going to Oxford or Cambridge. Now, they may not be any better than the University of Sydney, for all I know, but nevertheless, it's Oxford. It's Cambridge. So you get there and you look around. and These buildings are so old. You know, I've spoken in St. Bennett's Church. The nave was built in 1200. You go to Oxford and you can stand on the place where Ridley was burned to death. There's a feeling of history. And, and, and within that framework, you, you, you can be so impressed by the city and the stone in Oxford, all that Cotswall stone. In, in Cambridge, all the granite and, and the architecture and, 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 and the little statue of Henry VIII. And um, uh, on and on and on. King's College Chapel. Uh, uh, we, we, when we first brought our little kids there, because there's such excellent echoes in there, we had to be careful with them. They, they'd come in and they found out that such, such wonderful echoes. And all the reverberate, ah! and then the reverberation all around, because you know it's a fine example of perpendicular architecture. That's what all the guidebooks say. It also makes a good echo chamber. And so you go in there, and and you you can't help but be slightly intimidated by what's going on. That's just the architecture, and then all of these posh dons with their thick, plummy, silver spoon in the mouth accent, you know. And, and they have so many ways of putting you down. 
They, they re- they're really good at it. They, really, they practice. They, they practice on all the colonials. And, and so you can feel really a bit intimidated by the whole game. So what was Paul doing in Athens? Was he admiring the Parthenon? By the time Paul got there, the Parthenon had been built for 500 years. But he looks at Athens and he's distressed by the idolatry. He's thinking theologically. I'm not speaking against sociology. It's a great discipline, useful for all kinds of analysis and uncovery of trends and demographics and belief systems and all the rest. I read quite a lot of sociology. The danger of reading too much sociology, however, is that the sociological categories become the categories by which you think. But your first job as a minister of the gospel is to convert the categories of horizontal analysis, not least sociology, to theological categories. And then you're better equipped to think through culture from a biblical point of view and with it matters of application, apologetics, structure, and a whole lot of other things. For example, there are rising numbers of thinkers today who speak of this in the Western world as the age of possibilities. I think it's very insightful. The sort of millennial generation thinks of the age of possibilities. That is, it's really difficult to say no to anything because you're looking over your shoulder all the time in case a better one's coming along. You don't want to say no to anything because there are more options out there. Why should I foreclose on anything? But in the age of possibilities, there's no age of commitment. There's no commitment because you're still examining the the possibilities. So so, so you have young people at the age of 35 not being able to figure out which, which way to grow up because they're still figuring out the possibilities. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a medical society in North America, a Christian medical society. And uh, there were three or 400 there. And after a day or two of this conference, a group of them came to me sort of surreptitiously after a meeting, sidling up to me as if it was somewhat dangerous to say anything to me. Um, I, I may have the gift of intimidation. I'm not sure. But that's the way they approached <laughs> me. And, and they said, could, could we have a private conversation with you? I said, who's we? Well, a, a bunch of us medicals. Okay, when? Tomorrow for breakfast. We'll take you to breakfast. Okay. Okay. So the next morning I met for breakfast a little extra early and they went to a restaurant. They hired a separate room that was closed off. And once the waiters had gone, and they were sort of shifting in their seats and looking around. Down. Nobody had spoken up yet. I said, all right, why did you guys invite me here? They were all men, all medical doctors. There may be 20 of them, 24. And finally, one of them blurted out, why can't we get married? I said, come again. (laughs) None of us is married. We haven't quite figured out how to get to that point. I said, you're doctors. You must know something about the biology. (laughs) 
These were really bright people who knew absolutely nothing about commitments beyond their medicine. Absolutely nothing. Really bright people. Christian people. They live in the age of possibilities. Now convert that into theological thinking. We follow the God of possibilities. Well, possible gods. It might be this God. It might be that God. It depends on your point of view. It depends on the culture in which you were brought up, don't you see? And this God may say this to one person, may say that to another person. He's quite a flexible God, you know? As the French Canadians say, a super grandpapa, a super granddaddy. The age of possibilities means that at the end of the day, there is no commitment, there is no submission, there is no faith, there is no resolution, there is no dying to self that I might live for Christ for all eternity. There is no weighing of the values of this life over against the things of the next life. Theologically, the name of the game is open-ended selfishness. Massive immaturity. So one of our jobs as we try to think through the word of God and how to apply it to people's lives and what it might mean then for structure and apologetics and all the rest, one of our jobs is to understand our age as best we can. And you're going to understand Australia a lot better than I ever will. But then to think through cultural, demographic, sociological, political phenomena in theological categories. And then when you preach the theology out of Scripture, the theology that is grounded in Scripture, to pass it back across the line the other way so that people can see how it applies and calls a nation and a time to repentance. And last, ask God for wisdom. Many, many, many decisions depend on what many call simply prudential wisdom. It might sound slightly repetitious. I like the expression, prudential wisdom. For Christ himself offers it to us. God himself in the epistle of James tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we're to ask. And God loves to give it. So that instead of jumping on our horses and following off every passing comet that seems to draw us to its light, sometimes it's better to slow down, quietly seek God's face, and ask him for wisdom to spare us from our own worst follies, that we may be wise in the proclamation of the truth, as well as bold and faithful. Let me bow in prayer, and then we'll open it up to questions. I think that there are going to be a couple of roving mics so wave your hand, and a mic will miraculously appear in front of your face, and then you will be preserved for posterity. Let's bow in prayer.